not unusual to talk to somebody who has uh, resisted the gospel message until something uh, dramatic happens. Our church is uh, filled with many people who were brought to their knees through some kind of uh, difficulty which opened their heart to the gospel message. God in His uh, mercy allowed them to go through a deep valley, maybe suffering or loss in order to bring them to a place where the gospel was uh, received. I, I can remember visiting several years ago a young man in the hospital who had heard and rejected the gospel for years. And, but after being shot by uh, a, a man in an altercation, narrowly missing death, his, uh, his tough exterior was uh, replaced with a with a tender openness, and there in the hospital he trusted the Lord. The body of Christ is uh, filled with testimonies of believers who were coasting. And maybe you can identify with that until something happened that kind of arrested your attention, something that brought you to a point of new and fresh surrender. To the will of God. Not long ago, I read the biography of uh, uh, John MacArthur, uh, who's still alive, and uh, in fact, in his mid 70s, still pastoring. And a uh, gentleman wrote sort of an aerial view, uh, a rather quick biography of his life. I enjoyed reading it. Many of you perhaps have listened to him on the radio or read his commentaries. He was interviewed on the on his 40th anniversary. He's been pastoring there at Grace Community for 42 years now, I believe. And I read much of that transcript. He tells of the incident where God you know, really got a hold of his, his life. He was already a believer. But he was a passenger in um, an automobile. There were five other college-age students, and, they, uh, and John was sitting in the passenger side, and they were, they were racing down the interstate, doing about 75, 80 miles an hour, and the driver lost control. And the car ended up flipping over on its roof, and it skidded down the highway more than the length of a football field. Uh, nobody had seatbelts back in those days, and uh, none of the other kids were thrown from the car. Uh, John said the reason the car didn't continue rolling over is that his door opened and sort of acted like a brace, keeping the car from flipping over any further. And he said none of the other students were thrown from the car, but he was. And he said he could remember sliding down the highway on his back next to the car. And he said, I could see it spinning beside me as we both skidded down the highway at 70 miles an hour. He didn't break any bones, but he would spend months in the hospital recovering, literally the entire back of his body embedded with asphalt. He said uh, it was in this he said in this interview, it was at this time that he came to terms with God's will for his life. I guess so. <laughs> I just sliding down the interstate, there's the car, just turn it around as you go down. Lord, here am I, send me, right? I have uh, no doubt we could take a microphone and we could go around and you could share a story of your own about how God either opened your eyes to the gospel or brought something into your life after conversion that tenderized your heart, so to speak, and broke down your will so that you surrendered in some particular area. In fact, uh, I would imagine that you would be troubled about uh, 
one thing more than anything, and that is that you don't walk with God as consistently as you'd like to walk with God, right? I mean, one of the reasons you're here tonight is you want to just be in the assembly. You want to be around the Word of God. You want to be around the believer. Why? Because you want to walk with God. And I so commend you for that. And you're troubled, perhaps, as I am, with the fact that you'd like to walk more closely with him. You want more than anything for the legacy of your life to be that he or she walked with God. I mean, you go to a funeral and and you hear people trying to make meaning out of a person's life. In fact, sometimes you hear such glowing reports, you think you might have wandered into the wrong funeral. And you check the name on the programming and just to make sure. See, it's at that moment, it's at moments like those where we are confronted with what matters most. It hits us. Nobody's getting up behind the podium and and, and saying things like, you know, he made a million dollars a year. I, I, I never saw him drive a used car. You know, she always wore the best clothing. You should have seen her kitchen. No. We're looking for evidence that this person had life that mattered. They walked with God. So, Lord, we need help with what that looks like. We'd like uh, you to robe that in flesh and blood for us. We could use a hero that demonstrated this kind of legacy for us, and that's exactly what God provides in this next hero of living faith. His name is Enoch. He's found in three different passages of Scripture. He's making an appearance in Hebrews 11 and Genesis chapter 5, and that little letter by Jude, just one chapter long, he appears there. What I want to do with the time we have is kind of reconstruct his, his biography by putting together the biblical pieces, and I want to put them together in consecutive order as he would have lived it out, which means we're not going to start with Hebrews, we're going to go to Jude, that little letter where we read in verse 14 that Enoch was the seventh generation from Adam. Four or five things about his biography that I want to give you. This is the first one. The record of Scripture tells us that Enoch was the seventh generation from Adam. And you might wonder, well, why in the world does that matter? I mean, is that supposed to be some kind of, um, you know, impressive pedigree uh, you know, like he's a descendant of one of the families that came over on the Mayflower, or he's a distant relative of a former president or a or king, so what that he's the seventh in the line from, from uh, Adam. Well, it matters because um, we're, we're told this, we're given this clue. If you spend time studying the descendants of Adam, Enoch was from the godly line coming from Seth, the son of Adam. And he was the seventh patriarch descending from the line of Seth. And and that particular clue kind of nudges the Bible student to notice that uh, Enoch's counterpart then would have been the seventh generation coming from the line of Cain. You remember the first murderer who killed Abel. And there's a world of difference between Number seven in the line between the seventh from Cain and the seventh from Seth. The seventh patriarch in the line of Cain was a man by the name of Lamech. In fact, Genesis chapter 4 gives us the descendants of Cain. 
And Genesis chapter 5 gives us the descendants from the line of Seth. And if you go back sometime and study those two lines, don't be confused. In fact, there are Enochs and Lamechs on both sides. So you have to be observant as to whether or not you're looking at the line of Cain or the line of Seth. Uh, Lamech, the descendant of Cain, and I'll just sort of say this, he, he was the epitome of ungodliness. He, um, he was a wicked man. There's a little poem embedded in the text that we can't take time to, to decipher, but basically Lamech is, is, has written the poem, and in the poem he is boasting of killing a young boy for offending him. And in that poem he brags that he is 70 times more wicked than his forefather Cain. Cain? <laughs> oh, I'm 70 times badder than Cain. He's nothing compared to me. Add to this the fact that Lamech is the first man to begin the practice of polygamy. It'll be a blight on human history, violating the God-created ideal for marriage. All that to say, the seventh in the line from Cain is a self-centered, brutal, ungodly man who defied the authority of God. So when Jude tells us that Enoch is the seventh in the line of Adam. It lets us know that his life is running parallel to Lamech, and it also tells us that Enoch was not living in an easy day to live for God. You know, we might have the impression that, oh, he walked with God. Well, how easy could it be back then? Oh, far from it. Now, I want you to notice the second piece of Enoch's biography. It's, it's found in Genesis 5 and verse 21, where we're told he was the father of Methuselah. We're told in verse 21 that he lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Now, there's more to this story than it first meets the eye. And don't go back if you're flipping back and forth in your Bible, but we'll, we'll put off just for a moment or two this observation, but I want to at least notice or, or make note of it here that Jude tells us that Enoch became a prophet. In other words, he received revelation from God. In fact, as we'll see in a few moments, he received very specific revelation about a coming judgment. And we also know, by putting the clues together, that his name was more than likely given to him from God, or Enoch, in his belief, named his son what he named him because of that revelation. He names his son Methuselah. He didn't name his son Methuselah to embarrass him at graduation when they read your whole name, you know, and you have to come up front. No. Methuselah means when he is dead, it will come. It's a reference to coming judgment. Enoch the prophet was given revelation from God, and he would end up, by the way, preaching it to his ungodly world when my son dies, it will come. I have given you a list representing the chronology of patriarchs from Adam to Noah. And if you study the descendants of Adam and take at face value, the years were given by God, and there's no reason why not to. Adam was created in the first year of creation. We know from Scripture it was on the sixth 
day. He lived 930 years. In these days before the flood, there was a water canopy in the atmosphere shielding the earth from harmful rays. Earth is watered daily by a heavy dew. Rain has never fallen on the planet yet, according to Scripture. If you look further on your list, you'll notice the patriarch Jared was born 460 years after Adam. And you can see Adam's still alive. These men would have known of each other. They probably knew each other. They have a, they have a compounding interest of revelation that God is delivering. And they would have learned from Adam, of course, the principles of atonement and, and the gospel promise. Then Enoch's born, you notice, and compared to the rest of the patriarchs, he dies at the age of 365. He dies a very young man, <laughs> comparatively. This was young. In fact, at the age of 65, he has his first child with his wife, a son. Although we're not uh, given the details, God visits Enoch in some fashion and informs him of coming judgment. And he also informs him that his son's life will be the measurement of God's final years of patience. For when this boy dies, God promises to judge the human race. So name your son Methuselah. When he dies, judgment will come. Is that what happened? Well, if you look further on your chart, you'll notice that Noah is the last patriarch listed according to Genesis 5, and the clues of this chronology place his birth in the year 1056. We're also told that he lived 950 years. Now, if you'll bear with me uh, one moment, we're, we're given another piece of information. In fact, according to Genesis chapter 9, verse 28, you might want to even flip over there if you're in the book of Genesis. In chapter 9 and verse 28, we're told that Noah lived 600 years before the flood and 350 years after the flood. And that is a wonderfully helpful verse because it allows us to date the actual event of the flood to the very year it happened. And that year was 1,000 656, which just so happened to be the exact year Methuselah dies. Now, it took 969 years for the prophecy to come true, but it came true, just as God said. But can you imagine? I mean, you're Enoch. Uh, You're in the delivery room, and and, and there's that squalling boy, and, and God informs you that you're holding in your arms the length of his fuse, and it just got lit. And you don't know how long it will take before the explosion, but as long as that boy lives, judgment tarries. Keep in mind we have no record or hint of Enoch being told how long his son would live. In fact, the implication is he thought it wouldn't be very long. As far as he knew, his son might die in infancy. I think, I think Enoch would have been shocked to find out that Methuselah would out, not only outlive him, but he'd live to be 969 years of, of age. Surely he wouldn't live long. I mean, already the human race is, is involved in demonic worship. If you study these times, astral worship. They're worshiping at the zodiac. 
They're living in utter rebellion and depravity. This is a human race now marked by murder and brutality. Men are boasting of killing children. Polygamy has now become a new standard with all of its abuses of women now in vogue. I mean, Enoch must have been thinking, okay, if that's true, my son is not going to live for very long. But he begins to preach this truth. I think he's surprised, but he will keep at it and he will preach for some 300 years. 300 years. The judgment's coming. And he doesn't know if his son will live two years, 20 years, 200 years, or two minutes. So then follows this biographical observation. This comes into play now. Number three, Enoch walked with God. This is the event that changes everything. I mean, this is like, you know, sliding down the interstate on your backside, right? Or maybe surviving a gunshot or, or a cancer report or, or bankruptcy or, or something. The birth of Methuselah dramatically altered the life of Enoch forever. The moment he held that little boy in his arms, he was a different man. In fact, I think that God wants to make sure we don't miss the crossroads experience in Enoch's life because in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 21, he makes it very clear, then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. Then and only after then. His entire outlook on life radically changed. Frankly, I've heard the testimony before of a man, men, who in that delivery room holding a child knew, wow, oh my, wait a second. I am responsible for the next generation. I'm going to be watched. I'm going to be modeled after. I am going to need to walk with God like never before. That's a good thing. Reminds me of the testimony of one man who, who struggled with alcoholism. Nothing could get him to stop. Not the financial struggles they had because of it, but the pleading of his wife, the disrepair of their home, all the things that she and he did without. Then they had a little boy. And you'd think that this would change him, but it didn't. In fact, one winter day, when this father slammed out of their house and began to walk through the snow toward a nearby tavern, he heard behind him his little boy calling out, Daddy, slow down! Daddy, slow down! The man turned around to see his son taking giant steps in the snow where his father had stepped, and he shouted, Go back inside! What are you doing? What are you doing? And the little boy said, look at me, Daddy. Look at, look at me. I am now big enough to walk in your footprints. The father was thunderstruck. He stood there for a moment, and then he, he walked over, and he picked up his son and headed back to the house. And he said more to himself than anything, well, in that case, I had better change direction. 
Now, I want to make a point here that I think is important because I believe this hero is for believers. You need to understand that Enoch was from the godly line of Seth. Everything I've said back there, I now want it to, to, to bear weight here. Enoch already followed God. We would call him a believer in our vernacular. He wasn't an idolater. Uh, in fact, no one would have been surprised to hear, hey, guess what? God chose Enoch to be a prophet. Well, of course. I mean, that figures. No one would have been surprised that he would be a, a prophetic voice in the land. Uh, Kent Hughes provoked my thinking in his Old Testament commentary on this man's life when he said, it's interesting that the Old Testament distinguishes between people who walk before God and those who walk after God and those who walk with God, literally by the side of God. And there very, and there very well may be this nuance of an implied difference between following after God and walking with God. It, it can be the same thing. Don't misunderstand but it might imply something different, something deeper. Enoch walked with God. Now, we're not, we're not given any information about any issues that changed in Enoch's life and heart there in the delivery room. We're, 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 after the birth of his son, his, his epitaph would have changed dramatically. Before then, it would not have been he walked with God. It would have been something else, and probably things would have been said about him that were good and maybe even godly. But after his son's birth, whatever the obstruction was to spiritual communion, whatever the lack in desire or passion, whatever the potential compromise or struggle or unyieldedness Enoch evidently dealt with it and began to not only walk after God and before God, he not only followed God, he began to walk with God. Now let me stop here for a moment. What does it take to walk with God? Well, let, let, me, let me suggest it. it's... Uh, it takes the same thing for you and me to walk together. For one thing, we have to all agree, we have to both agree on the destination. If we're going to walk together, right? I mean, if you want to walk around the block five times, and, and, and I want to walk to Bojangles for a biscuit and sweet tea, I mean, we've we got to go our separate ways, and I feel sorry for you because of what you're going to miss. We can't, we, we can't walk together unless we are walking in the same direction. So we have, to say, we have to have the same purpose, the same goal in mind, don't we? Secondly, we, we can't walk together unless we keep the same speed or pace. I can't ring your doorbell and say, hey, look, how would you like to walk around the block with me? And you say, well, sure. And I say, well, look, why don't you go get on your shoes and I'll go ahead and get started without you. It wouldn't work, would it? If I walked around the block 10 paces ahead of you or 10 paces behind you, we might be out on the street together at the same time, but we're not in conversation. We're not enjoying each other's fellowship. 
We're just in the same neighborhood. To walk with someone, you have to have the same purpose in your spirit and the same pace in your step. Something happened to Enoch's purpose and pace. We don't know all the details. Something happened. Hebrews 11 gives us a little bit of a clue. It tells us that he began to exercise a living, passionate faith in two distinct perspectives. He becomes an illustration of what kind of faith pleases God. First, Enoch began to trust by faith that God exists. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, verse 6 says of Hebrews 11. In other words, without trusting him as to your purpose in life, as to your pace in life, you can't closely commune with him, can you? I mean, if we're arguing about God's pace, hey, come on, you're behind. Or, or you're, you're, you're so far ahead, I can't see you. If that's our argument, we're not really enjoying communion with him, are we? Now, by the way, he's, he's referring to believers when he says without faith it's impossible to please him. He's not talking about saving faith. I believe he's talking here about sanctifying faith. This is close communion with God, which happens to be the greatest treasure in our lives. And what kind of faith is that? He goes on to write in verse 6, For he who comes to God must believe that he is. So the first perspective in this walk of faith is living with a perspective that God exists. And you're thinking, now wait a second, every Christian believes that. Oh, The question would be, do we act like it? See, Enoch began to walk like it. Do we really acknowledge that he exists in all our ways? Do we lean upon him for wisdom? Do we we act like he isn't really in our neighborhood? And so we're going to walk at our own pace, and we've got our own purpose, and maybe God will catch up. Or maybe God doesn't really care that I don't care. He'll be okay with it. Haven't you been around someone, some Christian, and you walk away thinking to yourself, man, that guy, that gal really believes that God exists. And we're all Christians. I mean, he walks like it. He acts like it. He talks like it. You think God's really, really in the room and alive. That leads me to the second perspective. Not only do you truly live as if God is truly alive, but you believe by faith that he's actually involved. You see, he writes in Hebrews that he is going to come with his reward. And stop for a moment and understand he's writing this letter to Hebrew Christians. That's why it's called Hebrews. And they're suffering. They're impoverished. They're being martyred. We're going to eventually get to the end of the chapter where they're being cut in half. And they're wondering, is God really out there? And if he is, does he really notice? Does he care? What's happening to us? Enoch would be mocked for his commitment and his firm belief that God is actually coming with his reward, and it may be judgment for those who do not believe 
reward for everything you've ever done as a believer for him. And he's going to preach for nearly 300 years to his culture as his culture grows all the more depraved. And then Noah begins to build an ark, and, and he joins Enoch in evangelistic meetings that Enoch has been taking care of for about 180 years already. And, and they have, between the two of them, they have 400 years of preaching. Enoch will die much earlier, but they have, between the two of them, 400 years of preaching to a depraved culture, and there will be absolutely no result. None. I mean, is God really alive, and is He really involved? Isn't that our struggle to remain pure and pursue a walk with God and maintain a distinctive testimony surrounded by a depraved culture? I mean, is it worth the effort? Does God note our tears? Does God note our difficulties? Lord, are you there? And if you're there, and I'm sorry for even doubting, but do you care? Every sincere Christian wants to strengthen their walk with Christ, to commune with Christ, to be pleasing to Christ. So begin this practice throughout the day of talking as if he is indeed alive, because he is, and that he sees and cares. How do you work up your walk of faith? I mean, what can you do in practical terms to strengthen your walk of faith? Well, if I have enough time in my week to add to my uh, research and study, and as an aside, I work on my Sunday night sermon first because I work really well by pressure, and I know I've got to preach on Sunday morning and so I'll start Sunday evening, and I spend as much time on Sunday evening, if not more, than I do on Sunday morning. And if I have a little extra time, I'll pull out a book by Thomas Manton. He's a Puritan who pastored in the 1800s. He has a commentary on Hebrews 11 on, on his sermons. Just his sermons from Hebrews 11, it's over 700 pages long. You think I'm slow. He had over a hundred pages just on these couple of verses. Well, in one section, he provoked my thinking, and I really wanted to share it with you, so let me quickly give you what he said to his congregation on how to work up your walk of faith. He's a very practical pastor. Five ways. Number one, you work up your walk of faith by way of meditation. By way of meditation. He wrote, there is nothing you prize that you do not allow your mind to run upon. It's his way of saying daydream about. So, so daydream, he said, run upon the truth of heaven and its glory and, and the presence of Christ. I would put it in our vernacular, daydream about that like you daydream about winning the lottery. Okay? Or you see that sign, we're up to $47 million on the side of the interstate. That messes me up. Because down the road, I'm thinking about how I could spend that $47 million. All for the Lord, of course, but I could spend it all. Secondly, work up your walk of faith by way of argumentation. I love this point. He doesn't mean go out and pick a fight. He's actually talking about arguing with yourself. Argue with yourself. 
When you have some doubt arise, go into the Word and commit your mind to the truth of His promises and argue with anything that rises up against the hope you have within you. When's the last time you've had a good argument with yourself? Stephen, you should not be thinking that's doubt. Get rid of it, okay? That's what he's talking about. Third, work up your walk of faith by way of supplication. Cry out with David. He wrote, oh, Lord, guide me with thy counsel. Let thy truth and thy light lead me. Fourth, work up your walk of faith by way of dedication. He writes, do not men strive to step higher in the world, you know, get a leg up. Do they not rise early and go to bed late only to maintain their frail lives that are crumbling to dust? (laughs) I mean, are working their heads off for stuff. He says, shall we do nothing for God? Should we not be more industrious? I love that language. I mean, if people are, are, are sweating it out, for, for temporary things, shouldn't we be industrious for eternal things? So if we want to work up our walk of faith, we do it by meditation and argumentation and supplication and dedication. And finally, number five, we work it up by means of expectation. We look for him. Like Paul wrote in Titus chapter 2, we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how you work up your walk. And that doesn't, by the way, pull you away from people, make you some ascetic who withdraws from the world and from the normal pressures of life. In fact, Enoch will begin to passionately engage with his culture. And he, number fourth, in this biographical insight, he warns of coming judgment. He warns of coming judgment. Jude's little letter informs us that Enoch prophesied, verse 14 tells us, that the Lord is going to come with thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in ungodliness or an ungodly way. And you get the idea that a sermon is calling everybody ungodly. How popular would that be? He's prophesying that God is going to judge ungodliness. Now we know from our fuller record of Revelation, all the way through the epistles and Revelation, that this event he's prophesying about is going to take place at the end of the tribulation. When the church and Christ return to judge the world as Christ sets up his kingdom. But what Enoch doesn't know is that God is actually going to apply this aspect of judgment to an earlier event that will take place as soon as his son, Methuselah, dies. It's the worldwide judgment of the flood. And and we have every reason to believe Enoch doesn't know how far away that coming judgment is. He just knows it's coming. So just imagine for a moment. By the time Methuselah turns 850 years old, around that time, Enoch's already dead, God comes to Noah and says, build an ark. And we'll deal with that in our next uh, lesson together. So I don't want to spend too much time there, but He says to Noah, start building an ark. Methuselah becomes a a picture of God's patience. Isn't it interesting that the man whose death will bring judgment is the man God determines 
to live longer than any other human being has ever lived. That's the patience of God. Methuselah is 875 years old. Noah lays the keel and the ribbing, fits the sides, the crowd gathers and mocks. What's well, rain, Noah? I don't know. I've never seen it, but uh, it's coming. Methuselah is 940 years old. Noah and his family are working on the inside, the interior of the ark. Methuselah is 965, 966, 967. Noah hangs the door on the hinges. 968, Noah and his family pack the ark with food. 969 dawns and pairs of animals begin appearing. The ark is finished. The family's getting on board, and they get the news that that Grandpa Methuselah has just died. Now, he never reserved a seat on the ark because he knew he didn't need to. His death would signal the judgment of God. Every patriarch by that point in time from the line of Seth has now passed away, except for Noah. And the judgment of God promised nearly a thousand years earlier now comes, and for the first time in human history, the sound of thunder is heard, and rain begins to fall. More on that next time, but let's back up and go back to Enoch years before this event. Let me give you the fifth piece of his biographical puzzle. falls into place. He's not only the seventh generation from Adam, not only the father of Methuselah, not only walked with God, not only warned his world of coming judgment, but finally Enoch was the first human being to vanish from sight. Hebrews 11 and verse 5, we finally get to that verse tells us that Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. He was not found because God took him. Uh, The Greek word for took him up has the same idea of being raptured, literally being snatched away. He just vanishes. We're not told how God did it. We're just told he did it. And the text says He couldn't be found. That means they tried. They sent out search parties. They probably assumed somebody from that line of Cain did him harm. Who saw him last? Where was he? Let's go search. They tried. They looked. I mean, come on, this this doesn't just happen. What do you mean he, he just disappeared? That doesn't just happen. Oh, maybe today the same thing could happen. Only this time, every person who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ will suddenly vanish, disappear. One pastor wrote of the gospel being taught by a Sunday school teacher, and she'd been teaching her five-year-old class about heaven and what it takes to get there and teaching them the gospel, and she decided to test them a couple of weeks ago as he was writing it. So she asked the class, if I sold my house and my car and had a big garage sale and gave all my money to the church, would that get me into heaven? All the children said, no, ma'am. She said, if I cleaned the church every day, mowed the yard, and kept everything neat and tidy, would that get me into heaven? Again, the answer was a resounding, no, ma'am. She wrote, I was starting to smile. They were getting the gospel. She went on, if I was kind to animals and gave candy to children and loved my husband, is that what I've got to do to get into heaven? And they all shouted, no, ma'am. 
She wrote that she was bursting with pride. They were all learning so well. And she asked, well then, what do I got to do to get into heaven? And one five-year-old boy shouted out, you got to be dead. (laughs) Hey, I I got news for you. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Enoch becomes not only a prophet of the coming judgment of God, who comes from heaven to earth in judgment, he becomes the first to experience God's ability to move someone from earth to heaven. Just like that. He vanishes. Warren Wiersbe writes that Enoch had been walking with God for so many years that his transfer to heaven wasn't really an interruption. He had been walking with God And he could not see him, but he believed he existed, and he believed he was personally involved. His legacy is that he walked with God, but his legacy is also that he walked away with God. And I close with this. In G. Campbell Morgan's biography that I'm reading through these days, this expositor wrote in the early 1900s, and I close with his quote, He writes, a little girl came home from Sunday school after hearing the story of Enoch, and she said, Mother, we heard about a wonderful man today in Sunday school. And the mother let her child tell her what she had learned. Well, his name was Enoch. And you know, Mother, he used to go for walks with God. The mother responded, that's wonderful. But how does the story end? She said, well, one day they walked on and on and on and got so far away that God said to Enoch, you're, you're such a long way from home, you might as well come on to my house <laughs> and live with me. Isn't that great? Which happens, by the way, to be his plan for you and for me as well. Every one of us who belong to him one day will end our walk of faith, like Enoch, by an invitation already printed by the Lord with the exact moment, either by means of the rapture or death, to just come on to his house and live with him forever. Amen. Amen.